This is the FutureX podcast. In each episode, we interview a platform designer, author, or publisher. They'll talk about how to build online communities that are diverse, welcoming, and safe. Now, here's your host, Lee Schneider. In today's episode, you'll meet Alexandra Noel Butler, known as Lexi B. She is one of Silicon Valley's most candid and prominent voices. In April 2017, Lexi B. founded Sister Circle, Black Women in Tech, a community that supports black women in tech companies and tech-related professions. Sister Circle has partnered with organizations such as Phenomenally, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Slack. We're going to talk about building communities, checking privilege that involves race, gender, and knowledge, and why social change requires inner work. Lexi B., welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So in doing the research for this, I was checking out the membership of Sister Circle, and it kept going up. Every time I read a new article, (laughs) now it's up to 15,000 plus members. And in the past, you've asked, you've been asked, what makes it different? Why, why is it different? So why is it different? And why is it attracting so much attention? I think for a few reasons. I think that um, when I created it, I did not seek to create a community of solidarity. I seek to find selfish and personal meaning in my own career. So when I first made this little Facebook group that's now this huge thing, it came from a place of, I need a Black woman who is higher ranking than me to help me navigate certain things in my job. I've always been in the tech industry, and I was I was in my late 20s, um, kind of in this crossroads where you know, you know the actual job, right? And now you're learning how to play with the job. You're learning these transferable and strategic skills. You're learning how to say what needs to be said without directly saying it. You're learning the political game at work. And so I was at a place in my career where I had the job down. It was, I had these opportunities to be more political at work, to learn how to say certain things to get what I need. I was working with senior leadership. And so how you talk to the head of policy and how you tell the head of policy or the head of legal or the head of finance, hey, you didn't do what I needed you to do. And because you didn't do it, we're now 15 days late. You say it differently than you would to a mid-level person in finance, (laughs) right? And so I was yearning for that attention and that mentorship from someone who looked like me to help. And so that's how it started. I said, I just want to have brunch with some people. And what happened at that brunch was, and I distinctly remember it, in Berkeley at Rick and Ann's, which is a great brunch spot for folks who don't know, was that 25 women showed up. And so it just, it instantly became more than me. And to watch these women interact and get cell phone numbers and talk about the things they were going through at work, some things that I was not going through and some things that I was going through, this idea came about and said, so what does it look like for all Black women around the world to somehow be connected professionally so we can talk about the things that we can't talk about at work. And what does it look like to be authentically myself in this space in order to encourage others to be authentically themselves? And I think that's what makes it unique. I am to a fault my most candid and unapologetic version of myself in this community. And I do that because I want others to be the same way. Now, does that happen because of the safety factor, if that's the right word, or that you're unapologetically Black, that it's a group of Black women? It is what it is. And 
that's where you're at with it. Does that, how much is that a factor in it? I think a mix of both. Um, first and foremost, yeah, we are an unap- unapologetically black group. I remember when I first started the group and I had people who were not black that were like, can I come? And I would say no. And <laughs> to get their responses, to get their their body language, where I would say it's a space for black women. If you are not a black woman, if you do not identify as a black non-binary femme person, this is not for you. And I can still love you and you can still love me. And so I think putting my foot down from the beginning, as well as having a plethora of phenomenal black women leaders who also supported that mission. So every time I felt very scared to go to a CEO of a company and say, yet the answer is no, you can't bring your your um, the head of your recruiting team who happens to be a white woman into this group. Just being affirmed by those other black women behind me and they were like, it's cool. Not everybody's going to like you. Safety is also a big thing. I put a lot of effort into making sure that the space is very safe. And the good news with the safety is that all of us put a lot of effort into making sure it's safe. I get texts, slacks, pings, DMs, all types of things, all types throughout the night and throughout the day of people saying, I don't know if this post is safe. And so we're always constantly having conversation about safety. And I always tell people that Black is not a monolith. And that's the beauty of Blackness and Black womanhood. And there have been times where I've had to lovingly escort people out of the group because they were violating the safety. When you can have the courage to tell people that their behavior and their tone is making this place unsafe. So either A, they need to change their behavior or B, they don't have to be at this party. I think that helps your community as well. So standing on that safety rule. How does the group get together the most and the most effectively? Because <laughs> those can be differently. Those can be different. <laughs> I'll take you through a journey. So pre-COVID, we would actually get together before it really became an organization. It was very like a, a grassroots movement. We would get together at restaurants. I would call a restaurant and say, how big of a reservation can I get? Right. Um, I remember in our first summer, we did soul cycle classes every Sunday. And so imagine a soul cycle class with 45 bikes in it and it'd be 45 black women, um, which was great. And then we go to the smoothie shop next door and grab smoothies. And then we started being more strategic. So I started connecting with tech companies and saying like, hey, what would it look like for us to partner and we put on events. And so we had this phenomenal creative director named Issa Cespedes, who I started working with. And I said, Issa, if I bring on a tech company and they give me $20,000 to put on an event, I want you to make it the blackest that it can be. Because black women, we are systemically, we're always in spaces that are not built for us. When I brought Issa on, I said, I want your job to be to, to use this partnership to create a space for black women. So when these women walk in the doors, they really feel like, oh, this was intentionally created for me. And I remember we had an event with Instagram in 2018 where we took over the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco and did a Senegalese-inspired tea party, right? Um, we have done some amazing mm. events with amazing themes. We, we once did an event where we turned an event space into a futuristic black hair salon and then had an event there right so um pre-covid we had this thing called friendsgiving in november every single year and we turn a peer space room or a, a space into something that was very very important to black womanhood my personal favorite was we did an ode to quilting 
because throughout the Black diaspora and Black women, quilting is a very sacred thing. Um, one of the ways that we use quilting in Black American history is that it was how Black women actually helped get to freedom. They would actually quilt um, the steps and the map into the quilts. And so we turned this space into this ode very much to Harriet Tubman, who's my patron saint, and this idea of lanterns and what does it look like for all of us to collectively quilt ourselves to our own liberation, our own freedom. Then COVID hit and everything stopped. And so we had to reassess and we started meeting collectively online. And I thought that during COVID, this is a wonderful time for people to actually start using our platform for speaking engagements. Lee, I think that part of career development and professional development is just have a brand. You can be really good at your job and if nobody knows it, does it matter? And I learned that early on in my career. So we started asking the women to apply for these monthly slots to teach other women something. And then they can use that recording and use that messaging on their platforms to really announce them as a speaker. And we did that a lot during COVID. And now that even though COVID is still rampant, because some people think it's not, we are starting to look at what does it look like to come back in person and start bringing our collective back in smaller groups, in more intimate groups, because since we are 15,000 people and Black womanhood is not a monolith, we have women from all different sides of the spectrum, new to tech, tech executives, Boston, Madagascar. And so we're currently in talks with a few companies of what does it look like to start our own insulated circles of, oh, here are the junior product managers or here are the senior DevOps engineers. However, we can cut all these identities and so people can still feel like they're in community and have wonderful conversations, but it also be very intimate and people can still build relationships, right? Yeah. The power of it is really clear. And I wanted to come at this from a slightly different direction, which is what? how does a group of women in tech act different, meet differently than a group of men in tech? Because clearly more is going on. There's a lot of knowledge sharing and there's a lot of you know information sharing, but there's another layer here that I wanted you to perhaps speak to. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I think that, well, I think that everyone is different than everyone. I think that we really, if we're going to really answer that question is it's twofolded. It's understanding that women and non-binary them folk are are different than men and that's what actually makes us great right men are different than women and that's what makes men great um and so honoring those differences i think is very very important as a person who's not a man <laughs> i can only and it's not identify as a man i can only speak to my observation of men and how men interact and i do think that unfortunately we live in a society where many times men are not given the space to be vulnerable and not given the space to be open, not given the space to actually speak about the emotional issues that are happening that affect the day-to-day. -day. Every time that I'm in a space with women, with queer people, with non-binary folks, I am allowed to, especially Black folks and Brown folks, I am allowed to be all the things that I am and not be diminished for that and not be crucified for that. Because the people in the room are aware that all of these layers that I am actually directly affect what's happening at work. When I started this organization in 2017, I keenly was aware 
that the men who were around me, many men who happened to be white, that were mentoring me at my job. I never want people to think that there were no mentors at my job. But their mentorship could only get me so far because I can't be like them. I can't walk in the room and say the things they say like them. I am a dark-skinned black woman with curly hair. So me saying what they say, I'm going to get in trouble and how they say it. So I was searching for a womanhood that was similar to me in identity that could say, okay, so this is how you say what he told you to say. It wasn't the what, it was the how. And I think that's what's very beautiful and unique about women's spaces and especially black and brown women's spaces is that there's this ancestral understanding of the oppressions that we've gone through as well as this divine understanding of the power and influence of our magic, whether or not other people see it. And when you bring that together in a room with all different types of experiences <laughs> and knowledge, so much can happen in that room. You can literally at the exact same time take a woman and say, look, this is your destiny and let me help you with your own liberation and also have the same conversation and say, hey, look, until you get there and you need to pay bills, this is how you're going to interact in your workspace so you are as safe and protected as possible. And I don't know if men have those conversations. And if they do, I'm not privy to them. They don't. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> they don't. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but it sound, what it sounds to me is that you're giving women an opportunity to be a complete person in all aspects yeah. of themselves. And yeah. that is a combo of safe and liberating, both yeah. things at the same time, which sounds yeah. powerful. I now, mean, think about it. Think about it like, you know, I am not... Um, a parent to a human and a parent to a dog. Well, that's different than a human, even though I think that he is a human. And um, the number of conversations that I have with mothers of all different walks of life um, and of all different ways of becoming a mother to a human and behind closed doors, them saying, so, hey, um, I'm a mom. So how I approach my job is now completely different, mm. right? The kid wasn't here yesterday. That was a different person at work. The kid is here today. I am now a different person at work. That does not mean that I don't want to do a great job. And that does not mean that I'm not good at my job. But I am keenly aware that how I interact with this job is different. The boundaries that I set were different. Or I need some extra help at home. You know, and, and I always give women um, and parents the grace and the flexibility to decide what that difference looks like. But I have never met a parent or a guardian to say the day before when they weren't a guardian or a parent is the same now that they are. Right. But when those women are in rooms of men, they usually don't say that. We are not allowed to say that. We have to sit there and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely just had a kid yesterday, but it's fine. Here's the slide deck. When they're in a room of women that they feel safe with, they are more open about all the trials and tribulations and stories and blessings that come to get that slide deck to this conference meeting that have actually nothing to do with the work in the slide deck. And that's just one example of how we have to support women being their full selves because, because of 
white supremacy and the patriarchy, really, we have been told, ingrained in us for generations, that we are not allowed to bring all of that womanhood to work and still rise to whatever length that we want to rise to. Let's talk a minute about checking privilege. Yeah. Now, our our listeners have heard and know about, I assume, when we talk about checking privilege, we're talking about gender privileges, racial privileges, historical privileges. But you gave a talk. I'm going to look at my notes here to get it right. Everyone is a freedom fighter, how to build equity in the workplace. And one yes. of the things that has come up in when I was reading up about you and, and some of my early learning about you is that there's also an institutional privilege in the workplace that the people who have been there at that job, at that company for a while, they know stuff and they know about negotiating. They know about stock options. They know about things that maybe a newer person wouldn't know and maybe more maliciously would be kept from. Yeah. So could you talk a bit about what do we do about that? When we talk about checking privilege, we're talking about a big array of things, really. Yes. So I think that people do not leave companies or organizations because the Black History Month food was salty. People do not leave because the pride programming was horrible or because the women's month, you know, T-shirt design was whack. I have never heard anyone tell me they have left a company because of performative things like that. In my experience, not only as a person who works for companies um, in the corporate world, but also a manager, a leader, all of these things, is people leave companies for two reasons. One they received an opportunity that's so great, you would tell them to take it, and that happens, <laughs> right? Or two, because there is something failing within this company, whether it's between you and that person or someone else in that person, where that person is not seen, safe, valued, or paid equitably. Those things are hard to scale because no one wants to do the deep work to scale them on an international level. And so when I talk about privilege, what I'm talking about is this idea that everyone walks around in the world with many privileges and many lacks of privileges at the exact same time, regardless of what you look like, where you come from, and what foods you ate when you were a child. Everyone lacks privilege and has it at the exact same time. Now, when you walk into different rooms in the world... Depending on what room you walk in and who is in there, that will decide where you are on the privilege spectrum in this room. But you can literally Lee, go to an 8 a.m. meeting and be the most privileged person in that room and then go to your 9 a.m. Be meeting and be the least privileged person in that room. And so in this talk, what I'm talking about is we have to identify what privilege is. And privileges, 95% of the time, are these layers of our identity that we did not ask for. So yes, race. Yes, gender. Yes, sexual orientation. But can I offer you ableism? Can I also offer you nationality? Can I also ask you, have you ever wanted for food at any time of your life? Did you grow up with parents that said you could be anything you wanted to be? 
Did you grow up in a household where there was more than one human, adult human, to care for you? Because research does show that having multiple adults care and provide for you makes it easier on the adults, but also makes it easier on you. Because raising a human is hard, right? Did you grow up in an environment where people were not trying to stop you from getting an education? What type of education did you get, whether or not you opted into that? Did you grow up in a house where you did not have to pay for college or you don't have any college debt, right? Did you grow up in a house where the guardians and the parents in the home, regardless of what job they had, they were connected to people that had jobs that you say you wanted to have? So if you said at five years old, I want to be a doctor, Regardless if the guardians in the home were doctors, did they have friends that were and you could go hang out at a hospital? And at five, six, seven years old, you could literally see what you said you wanted to be. And even if you didn't grow up and be a doctor, you got to physically perform and behave and be like, oh, yeah, don't want to do that. Or maybe now you're a neuro, maybe now you're a neurosurgeon. And your earliest memories of understanding the hospital is you being five years old watching a doctor. A whole lot of doctors don't have that privilege, even though they became doctors, right? And so my point is that we have to understand all of our privileges and all of our lack of privilege. Because when you understand all the layers of your privilege that affect your professional work, then you also understand how you can use that privilege to help somebody else in a 30 second period, in a moment, in a quarter, because you can find out, oh, they don't have that privilege, but I do. Oh, wait, I'm the most powerful person in this conference room right now. So if I say, hey, Lee, I would like you to present at the next meeting, I can do that because I own the invite. And no one can say that I can't, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm the one that owns the meeting invite and I'm noticing that you are always late, I can come to you and say, yo, fam, like you're always late. And you can say, yeah, because I have another meeting, but I want to be here. If I need you in that meeting, Lee, I can just move the meeting time because that's my privilege. Right. And it's moments like that that make your experience and work better because somebody's coming to you or many people are coming to you and saying, hey, let me help you out for two seconds. You understanding your lack of privilege, that gives you empathy. Because if you can remember the times that you lacked privilege, then you can also remember the times when you wanted someone to look at you so badly and offer you some for a few seconds. So that's what that's about. And this anticipates my next question, which is about connections. Yeah. And these, these bubbles and circles that we're all in. You mentioned the example of, uh, say, a kid wants to become a doctor and the caregivers, parents, guardians, they have access to doctors or hospitals. Yep. But there's a, there are many people who won't have that. You know, uh -huh. when I'm looking for a job in my younger career days, I had lots of access to people in media because my dad worked in media. So, you know, we, he could make literally make a call. Didn't always get me the job, but it got me in the room. Yeah. And privilege at work. So there's a cycle there and a bubble. How do we stop that? Or how do we make that so it doesn't limit people? Yes, I think one, the people in power have to recognize these privilege layers 
And two, the people in power must give people who don't have those privileges a chance. I am a product of people giving me chances. To be very transparent and check my privilege, my dad's a doctor. That's why I used that example. So I was the kid growing up where I I had access to shadow doctors and he was trying so hard to make me one. And I was like, I don't want to do this, right? I was that kid. When I started working in the tech industry three weeks after I graduated from college, there was no one in my family who knew how to navigate corporate space like this, right? I come from a family of doctors. I come from a family of first-line workers. My mother is a teacher. And in those roles, it's more its more literally binary, right? If you have this degree, you get this much money. If you get a higher degree, you get a little more money, right? So I didn't understand about negotiation or that kind of thing. And I distinctly remember I got my job. They offered me some money. It was eighty. It was it was um it was seventy thousand dollars. So I was twenty two years old, and I was like, "That's a lot of money, <laughs> right?" So I was like, "Yes." Then they asked for my references. Two days later, I got a call from the company, and they were like, "We're raising your price to eighty k." And of course, I'm like, "Great." I don't know why, but you don't leave money on the table, Lee, right? I found out later on when I started that job that one of my references who happened to be um, a very powerful fashion executive, because in my college career, there's one point where I worked, I did a fashion internship in New York and I worked really hard for her. And during my reference check, they called her. She answered the questions. She's not a woman of a lot of words. So knowing her, they were probably like, is she a criminal? And she was like, no. And they were like, do you like her? And she was like, yes, she's she's a woman of few words. Okay. <laughs> But I found out that before she got off the call, she said, how much are you paying her? Mm. And they told her. And she said, raise it. And she hung up. Mm. I would have never guessed that in a million years. There was nobody in my life, Lee, who could tell me to negotiate. I didn't know what that word meant. But I knew that at some point I would have found out that this person next to me is making 10K more. And I would have been mad. I would have been livid. And it's moments like that. And this woman is a very, very generationally wealthy woman who happens to be a white woman working in fashion to this day. When I did my internship, she was at this very major couture fashion house. She was the head of the department. I think we had a total of like three conversations that summer. I was the only black kid in the whole fashion floor. And I was definitely the odd person out. I didn't I didn't know anyone in fashion. I had never worked in fashion. And all the other interns were like, well, my godmother is Tori Birch. And my mom is the head buyer of Macy's. And here I am sleeping on someone's couch in Brooklyn because I have no money from St. Louis, Missouri, um, with no connection and just like a hope and a prayer. And this 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 white woman, for whatever reason, said, I'm going to help you out. I promise you, me and this woman are so many worlds apart. I'm sure there's something she saw in me, maybe hard work, maybe tenacity, but as far as identity and where we come from, loads apart, okay? I was wearing cute little blouses from Macy's Sale. She was wearing a $20,000 vest from Ralph Lauren Couture. We're different. (laughs) And for whatever reason, she's like, I'm going to open up my circle to this to this girl and let's see what happens and that's just a beautiful example of like that's what has to happen people in power have to open their circles people in power have to stop expecting these new people coming in having more experience on their resume than that one person in power did to get this job 
And those are the kinds of things that we also have to do. But bringing it back to community, people also need to build community because the part of Sister Circle Black Women in Tech was also me saying, hey, you need a you need a referral. Because I'm in a position of power at this company. You want to be at this company? Send me a resume. I'm going to go find the hiring manager. I'm going to use the same skills that white men use to get their friends in the door and their baby cousins and their sons and their daughters with you. Because that's what I need to do because I'm in this position and maybe I can be a bridge. And we need to do things like that. So when we're talking about here giving someone a chance, opening the circle, it sounds like community could be the best thing. Because when I think of this, I think of you're asking people to do the right thing, which is not always going to happen. Yeah. Or you, you have to do it by force, right. i.e. law. Uh, what's the yeah. What will work, do you think, out of, out of those choices or some other? I mean, I love... <laughs> I love a good equitable law, Lee. I'm not going to lie. I am. I'm not a pessimist. I think I'm a realist. I do not think that our country will, at least right now or in my lifetime, create laws that will make things equitable because of two things. One, because people think that equity means that their stuff is taken. Mm -hmm. Right. For whatever reason, I need a lot of people that, that basically I don't, I don't want to give up my piece of the pie. And my response is but I didn't ask you to give up your piece of the pie, right? That's my first response. My second response is, do you actually need that much pie? <laughs> like why, <laughs> right? Um, and I don't know if people in Western society are really ready to come to terms with that, especially in a country that we have to honor because history is what is the truth. This country, this, the, the modern version of this country was built on the inequity of a whole lot of people was built on the dehumanization of a whole lot of people and not just my people, a whole lot of people. And so it's interesting when I hear these talks and these debates about what policies we can make, I fully support policy change. I fully support constitutional change to require people to be equitable. My question is, how do you do that in a space that was built on the dehumanization of others to build this capitalist conglomerate. And no one has yet to be able to answer that question. So unless the, the highest ranking people in power are deciding to actively be like, you know what? I don't need all this pie. Let me give you a slice, mm -hmm. right? How is that going to work? And my response is, I don't know. And I, as pessimist as it sounds, I don't know if it can. And so we have this reckoning and realization how we got here and how we got here was taking the pie from a lot of people forcibly, right? Violently just being like, you can't have any of this. Mm -hmm. So in order for us to be equitable and start from zero, we're going to have to give some of that back. And also we're going to have to acknowledge that that violence happened. And we don't want to do that yet, Lee. Mm. To get this going requires inner work. Social change, social yeah. justice means yeah. inner work. So what does that look like for you? And what do you think, if, if I were to ask you, well, what inner work, what do you mean? What should I be doing? What would you say? I think the first inner work going back to privilege is you really have to understand you. You know, um, I always tell people the best work you can do in the movement of social justice is first to go to therapy and figure out your ish, figure out your trauma, figure out why 
you act the way you do, figure out why you respond to things the way you do. You have to really unlearn and relearn how to show up in the world as your authentic and equitable self, right? Mm -hmm. As you do that work, you're going to start really unfolding and finding, okay, so these are the ways that I can help people. At least that, that was my journey, right? As I always tell folks, like, I think people assume a lot of things about me because of what I look like. Um, and while some of those assumptions are really accurate, some of those are actually not. I think that I'm a very privileged person in this world. And I say that loudly and proudly as part of the Black liberation movement to understand that not all Black people lack all of these privileges. Now, we do have a foundational lack of privilege that we're not white and white supremacy is real. But I went to private schools growing up. I grew up middle class. I went to Stanford University. So I'm keenly aware of my privilege at all points in time. I'm keenly aware that many times I will get job interviews because it says Stanford, which is weird to me because I'm like, you don't even know anything about me, but I'm, I'm, I'm not stupid. I'm aware of that, right? And people can take that as they will, which is why when people interview with me, I'm the one who's like, I don't care if you went to college. Can you do this work? Can you be taught? That is inner work with me. And so I think the first step is everyone needs to do their own inner work. Most people don't want to do that inner work because that requires you to look in the mirror and figure out your own demons. And then the second step is to walk into discomfort and walk into rooms with people who are different than you and say, how can I help? You tell me how I can help and or you allow me to sit and hear your story without judgment. And then I can tell you how I can help. Because remember, Lee, a lot of people sometimes, including myself in many parts of my life, I'm like, I need help. And then people are like, what do you need? I'm like, I don't know. Just do something, <laughs> right? And I think we've all been there. And so I always tell folks, I don't want you to be an ally. I want you to be a freedom fighter. Do your own work. And that work's going to take you to a place where you have no problem walking into a room of people that are different from you and just saying, A, do you know how I can help? Cool. What do I got to do? And do it. B, oh, you don't know how I can help. Bet. That, that's a human response. Is it, Do you mind if I either A, learn about you and get to know you? Because maybe through you storytelling to me, I could possibly be like, oh, I think I can help with that. Or do you mind taking my number? And when you have figured out, when you've done your work and you figured out, hey, I think Lee could do this. Will you call me? That's something very powerful that I think we don't do. That's that human connection that we don't do because I think people are afraid to build those, you know, relationships and build that bridge. Because if you do, then you're going to start walking and acting different in the world. And that can be scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want this to get away from us and end today without mentioning you have a weekly live LinkedIn audio show called Live yeah. Coffee Chats with Lexi B. So tell us about that. That that came about um, in November 22. Again, checking my privilege. I started really having conversations with myself and other people. And I recognized that one of the privileges that I received throughout my career building is I've always found myself in situations where I had phenomenal leaders that felt comfortable telling me the truth, right? There is this world of, you know, the Google and you can buy a book on thought leadership of how to be a great leader, how to have hard conversations, how to 
how to be more vocal at work. And those in those books, many of them are fabulous. So I'm not knocking them. How I learned to do my job and not also just do my job, but just how to interact in the workspace. Those transferable under table skills, which in my opinion, that's what gets you promoted. We can teach anyone how to do the actual job. I need you to understand how to navigate this space is because I was always around people who I could learn from. Every company that I've been at, every internship that I've been at, there were a whole lot of people that were oppressing me and there was always some somebody or a few people who were like, okay, so I'm going to pull you into a room and I'm going to tell you this is how we get this done. Forget what they all say, right? Okay, I'm going to pull you into a room and I'm going to explain to you exactly what happened in this meeting because you need to understand who has the power in the meeting and it's not the VP sitting there. No one cares about that person, Lexi. It's this person and this is why. And I'm like, oh, just taking notes. And so I wanted to figure out a way, how can I scale that? And how can I have these conversations with phenomenal leaders around the world who are willing to have a real candid conversation about the lesson? And growing up for me, it was always having a meal with someone, having a coffee with someone, or having a happy hour drink with someone after. And so I'm trying to do that. So that's what the show is. It's every week with a leader um, talking about a lesson that they want to talk about. I know this coming week, it's about how to how to retain top talent. And I'm very excited um, with this human who's very open and honest about this is how you actually keep top talent. And hey, top talent, this is how you see these red flags when you need to go, right? Yeah. And let's have those conversations more publicly to help people navigate their career. Yeah. So how do people find that and how do people find you? Yeah, so you can find me um, by going to LinkedIn and just searching Lexi B. I will, I will come up and follow me. And you can also go to www.lexib.com to sign up for our monthly newsletter, which now has not only the monthly schedule for the live session, but also this really fun column that I've been working with of identifying very interesting pop culture moments um, with careers and how they actually mm. go together. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. That sounds great. Wow. Yeah. Lexi B, thanks so much for this powerful, moving conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future X podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or anywhere fine podcasts appear in your feed. Post a comment on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on the show. For more info about FutureX, visit futurex.studio.